Wow, the power and the beauty of music and what it teaches us. So I hate to be a mood killer, um, but alpha, beta, gamma, delta, epsilon, and zeta, eta, theta, and iota, kappa, lambda, mu, nu, xi, omicron, pi, rho, sigma, tau, upsilon, and phi, chi, psi, omega. Now, the reason I know that, some of you out here might know, the reason I know that is because I learned it through song. I learned the Greek alphabet through song in my sixth grade ancient civilizations class taught by Jane Carell, Miss Jane Carell. Who else had Miss Jane Carell for sixth grade? Yes, a few of us did. And most of us probably still know that song. Jane happens to be the mother of Diane Thomas. Diane and John are a part of Trinity as well. And I wonder how many times people walk up to Diane and sing that song because they remember it being taught by her mother. But I'm sure all of you have those kinds of songs that are deep in your memory and embedded into who you are. This 4th of July weekend, we may be thinking about songs like the National Anthem or America the Beautiful. Or from growing up in Sunday school, you have the memory of singing Jesus Loves Me and Jesus Loves the Little Children. Or maybe it's a Christmas carol, more than one, that you know by heart at least the first verse or so. And all of those songs, they teach us something about who we are, and they also, in, the, in terms of Christian songs and hymns, they also teach us something about who God is. So today we celebrate the fact that we are a singing people. We are a singing people. That's one of the best things about who we are as Christians in the Methodist branch of the family tree. We know that we, we are known for singing our faith and we are shaped by what we sing. Scripture talks about us singing, so, so I invite you to listen along to Psalm 100, one that probably many of you are familiar with. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And then hear this from um, the letter to the Colossians, to the church at Colossia, talking about um, how we should live in the best of who we are. And then verse 16 says this, the word of God must live in you richly. Teach and warn one another with all wisdom by singing psalms hymns and spiritual songs sing to God with gratitude in your hearts so let me pause for a moment invite you to bow your heads and pray for me as I share the message this morning and I pray for you that God will speak a word um, into your heart and life this morning let's pray
Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as Steve said last week, um, we returned home from a Wesley study tour in England about three weeks ago. We were leading that. It's, a, it's an endowed um, a trip by the Simpkins um, Family Trust, and it's for five clergy, United Methodist clergy in the Florida Conference, and their spouses, if applicable, um, to go on this trip and to follow in the footsteps of John and Charles Wesley in England. Um, as we were planning it, we also thought, wow, that'll be great to come home and then share with the congregation some of the gems that we mined while we were on the trip and about the best of who we are as Methodist Christians. So last week, Steve began with some of John's story, particularly the day that John felt his heart he said strangely warmed. Um, it was his conversion experience. Not that he didn't believe before, but he'd gotten it backward. He focused more on what he needed to do to earn God's faith, uh, God's grace, than being saved by God's grace and then moving on to live in a different way. So that day, April 24th, uh, 1938, was his conversion experience. Um, and then this morning, we're going to take a look at Charles. Um, we are going to look at what it means to be a singing people. As we sing our faith, we are united in worship, and we are united in what we believe. Now, John and Charles were brothers. Charles was his younger brother by four years, and they were very close throughout their lives. And God really worked through both of them to begin the Methodist movement. We think of John as the founder, but it really was both of them using their gifts. They talked about their partnership in ministry and, and through the gifts that they shared and their leadership, they brought about a revival. They were planning to bring about a revival in the, in the Church of England. It really revived the church and revived all of England and started this movement that we are a part of today. If John was the preacher and the organizer, definitely he was the organizer, uh, I think he might have been a little bit OCD, um, then Charles was the preacher and the poet. If John was the methodical one, Charles was the creative force. And in fact, Charles lived to be 80 years old, and during, he didn't, we don't have any hymns or poetry uh, written by him before 19, uh, before he was 30, and so in the 50 years from when he was 30 to when he died at 80 years old, he wrote, he averaged 10 lines of poetry each day, and over those 50 years, wrote at least two hymns every week. Two hymns every week. Um, I, the lowest total I've heard is 6,500, and the highest is over 8,000 hymns in those 50 years. So as we think about Charles, I, I want you to take a look at this video, and, and we'll learn a little bit more about him together. Thousand hymns. Charles Wesley is the poet laureate and, um, and great writer uh, of Methodism. Thousand 
So many of Charles' hymns talks about uh, the, the, the liberation of the human soul. Uh, in the hymn we love to sing, Oh, Four A Thousand Tongues, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Jesus, the name that charms our fears. Not only helps us sing our theology, but he helps us to understand what it is we really have to sing about and belt out with joy and inspiration. Charles Wesley left his mark on Methodism, a movement very much influenced by its music. Our theology is something that we've sung, and we've sung it in a way to help us understand it and to help us feel and experience it at the same time. So it's one thing for me to say, for example, incarnational theology. It's another thing for me to say, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Early Methodists took their hymnals home during the week, and hymns became daily devotions. They'd use it as a little, what's called a little mini dictionary. If someone wanted to know about uh, how to pray to God, uh, there was a hymn for that. If someone wanted to know, gee, what does it mean that, that Jesus is divine? There was a hymn for that. Born in 1707, four years after his brother John, Charles was the more creative force, and John the organizer. Charles' influence on John was every bit as great as uh, John's influence uh, on Charles. In these two brothers is a wonderful dynamic duo that really give us the heart and soul of Methodism. It was Charles's desire for a deepened religious experience that led them to form a holy club while Charles was a student at Oxford. And Charles had his conversion experience before his brother. We all know John's story of the heart strangely warmed, Aldersgate Day, May 24th. But guess what? Charles' heartwarming experience was May 21st. Charles Wesley's faith was most clearly communicated through the thousands of songs he composed. His words are known worldwide, and United Methodists can take pride in their connection to this poet and preacher. Being a Methodist, I like to think of the feast, the potluck, where all the churches gather in community. What do we bring to that feast? And for Methodists, it's song. At Easter time, not just Methodists, but Christians around the world sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. And at Christmas time, churches around the world sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Even Charlie Brown sings it. That's our gift. Even Charlie Brown sings it. Isn't it amazing that two of the most loved hymns, One Easter, One Christmas, are written by Charles Wesley? Christ the Lord is risen today and hark the herald angels sing. So when Steve and I were um, in England and we spent some time in Bristol, Bristol is where the new room is, which was actually the very first building that was built um, specifically for Methodist worship and ministry. 
And then just a couple of blocks from the new room is Charles Wesley's house, where he lived with his wife Sally and four children. This is one of the rooms, the music room in the house. And I can imagine them gathered around in the evening. After all, they weren't watching television, so they were gathering around the piano and singing together. His three sons were all quite accomplished uh, musicians and his daughter, a wonderful poet. So I think of them gathered around in that room. And then one of my favorite rooms in the house is upstairs in the attic. It's like a four-story townhouse type thing. And this is up in the attic above the fourth floor um, under the eaves and the desk where Charles penned just the magnitude of hymns that he wrote. And there he is kind of tucked away under the eaves and, and writing those probably late at night or whenever he wasn't out preaching, riding horseback, um, taking care of the family. He was there writing those words. Over 6,000, doing six and 9,000 hymns during his ministry. On the other hand, even though um, Charles wrote all of the lyrics, the words to those hymns, he didn't write any of the music. Instead, he set his lyrics to popular tunes of the day. Now, legend has it that it was bar tunes. I'm not so sure that was actually the case, but they were set to the art music of the 18th century using a melody of the day, the, the music of the day, and then putting Christian lyrics to it. He was able to um, meld together the sacred and the secular. The average person was able to connect with the music, the actual sound of the music and the, and the tune, and then Charles connected that with lyrics about God, with good theology about who we are and who we are in relationship to God and who God is. But remember that the music of that day, the art music of the 18th century is what we now call classical music. Still, the practice was setting his lyrics to contemporary music um, and using the theological language to, to connect it. And in light of that, it's not so different than the 9.30 service where we use the sound of modern music put to lyrics, words that speak our theology and what we believe. Of course, more importantly than, than, the, hymn, than the, the quantity of what he wrote or the tunes to which he set his hymns um, was the, the content of, of those hymns, the content of his writing. We often forget that Charles too was an ordained priest in the Church of England, just like John. He was a preacher. Some even say he was a a better preacher than John was, um, but Charles definitely was a preacher and a theologian as well. And the content of those hymns is formational in who we are and what we believe. As we have said 
and said last week, our faith is a matter of the heart. We do believe in that change when Christ comes and, and becomes a part of who we, who we are, a part of our lives, and we welcome Christ in. When Christ enters our hearts and lives, we are, we are transformed. We are inexplicably changed. And that's how what we know and affirm in these lyrics, love divine, all love's excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure unbounded love thou art. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, enter every trembling heart. And when we sing modern praise songs, modern praise songs, we continue to sing our theology, although I would say none are quite as gifted as the poet and theologian Charles Wesley, but they carry a similar message. Listen to this song we sang this morning at 9.30. Let the rain fall down from heaven, let it wash away the pain as we worship and surrender in the triumph of God's name. Feel the weight fall off our shoulders as our hearts respond in praise to the God who reigns forever and ever. Amen. See, no matter what the style of the music, I think John would say that when we are singing, we are united. Our singing unites us in what we believe and unites us together in worship. You know, there's not a whole lot in worship that we do that we do it actually all together using our voices. The Lord's Prayer, sometimes um, uh, a unison prayer, an affirmation of faith, but it's when we are singing together, we can feel that unity. Scripture says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into God's presence with singing, for the Lord is good. God's steadfast love endures forever and God's faithfulness to all generations. You know, at the beginning of the service today, I mentioned um, John's directions for singing. If you were to open a hymnal, um, at the very beginning, you will see John's directions for singing. And there are seven directions. He begins by, by talking about those directions in general. He says, directions for singing. That this part of divine worship may be more acceptable to God as well as more profitable to yourself and others, be careful to observe the following directions. So I'm going to walk us quickly through those seven directions. The first one is this. Learn these tunes before you learn any others. Afterwards, learn them as many as you please. So John's saying this, this is the most important here. And then rule number two Sing them exactly, exactly as they are printed here without altering or mending them at all. And if you have learned to sing them otherwise, unlearn it as soon as you can. He was pretty frank. Um, so rules one and two, they, they, they express this uh, uniformity for everyone, which would generate unity as well. Remember the early method, in early Methodism, they didn't have an abundance of hymn books and they were not 
in the worship space. John got kicked out of the church and wasn't allowed to preach in the Church of England anymore, inside the buildings. So they went out to the fields and they were preaching to the masses out in the fields. So they did these hymns often by call and response until people learned the words and they could sing them together. That's why it was important to sing them act exactly as they were printed or as they were learned so that they would all be singing the same. The third rule is this, sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, if singing is a cross to you, take it up and you will find a blessing. Rule three emphasizes the importance of everyone singing. It doesn't matter, matter, it doesn't matter whether you can feel like you can sing or not. Suck it up and sing it anyway. The point is for us to sing and to sing it together. And that unity comes when we worship and we praise God together. Rule number four, sing lustily. Now that's not lusting for others, but sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor more ashamed of its being heard than when you sung the songs of Satan. You know, think about how loud, I won't say it's the songs of Satan, but think about how loud we, we just belt out songs when we're at a concert, when we're, when we're singing with a lot of people singing to the radio in your car, and, and John is saying, do that when you're singing these songs as well. I do remember there were times when we were worshiping on 8th Avenue and the minister at the time, Dean Martin, I don't know if any of you all remember this, actually stopped us after a verse of a hymn. He would just wave his hands and he would stop. He might have even said, you guys sound like you're half dead. And he told us to sing, to really sing out, to sing with courage, to sing boldly because it is important for us to sing like we mean it. And then rule five, sing modestly. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation that you may not destroy the harmony, but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one clear melodious sound. Now, barring those who are tone deaf, uh, we still want you to sing, even if you're tone deaf. The rest of us, we're not supposed to act like we're a soloist and, and draw attention to ourselves, but to be unified. Um, and then rule, rule six is this, uh, similar, sing in time. Whatever time is sung, be sure to keep with it. Do not run before or stay behind it, but attest closely to the leading voices. And move therewith as exactly as you can. And take care you sing not too slow. This drawling way naturally steals on all who are lazy. And it's time to drive it out from among us and sing all our tunes just as quick as we did at first. Have you all ever been somewhere where you're singing a hymn and the, the first verse you're kind of, you're, you're moving right along. And then it seems to get slower and slower and slower. And then at the end you feel like it's a funeral dirge. So it's important for us to, to, to sing enthusiastically, to sing together, to sing at a pace that, that is energizing. Um, and then finally, it's the purpose. Why do we sing at all? 
And John answers those questions with the seventh and last rule. Above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing God more than yourself or any other creature. In order to attend strictly to the sense of what you sing and see that your heart is not carried away with the sound but offered to God continually so that your singing be as such as the Lord will approve of here and reward when he cometh in the clouds of heaven. Because it's not about impressing anyone else. And it's not about being impressed, even though we might be, by, by the soloist or, or the instrumentalist or the choir. It's not about being impressed with the style of the music that's being sung, even though we may have preferences. It's about God. It's about pleasing God. So I encourage you to sing, to sing out, even if you don't feel like you're good at it, even if you might be tone deaf, to sing with boldness, to sing with enthusiasm, to sing with joy, to sing like you mean it. Because when we think about all that God has done for us, how could we not Get lost in wonder, love, and praise. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. Let's pray together. Oh God, we give you thanks for the gift of singing, for music that speaks to us and moves our souls, and particularly for the ways that when we sing together, we are offering you praise and glory. Oh God, we give you thanks for the unity that comes as we sing together in worship. And we give you thanks for the ways that we learn more about you. We learn more about ourselves as humans. And we learn more about our relationship. So speak to us, O oh God. Continue to speak to us that we might live and learn and give you glory. Amen.